I'm going to start anyway, light or no light. Um, my name is Deborah Nord. I'm a member of the Department of English here and also uh, active in the program in Jewish Studies and uh, the director of the program of the study of gender, which has not yet been mentioned in the last three days. Um, it's a great pleasure to welcome you to the third day of this extraordinary celebration of Jewish American writers. It's been a very rich feast so far, and it's going to be uh, another wonderful day. And let me just remind you of what is to come. After our panel this morning, we'll have a quick break, and then a panel called The Holocaust from here. Uh, we'll have a lunch break, and then we will have our final panel at 2 o'clock entitled Comics, um, which should be interesting uh, for all generations, I hope. And then we'll have concluding remarks from Daniel Mendelson, one of our panelists this morning, and Michael Wood, my colleague in the English department. I wanted to say before I introduce our panelists that one of the great pleasures of this conference for most of us has been the rediscovery of um, old writers and old texts that we knew well, and the discovery of new writers uh, we probably haven't yet read and encountered. And at least one of the feelings that I'm left with is the desire to uh, read new things, which I think is in part what this is all about. Um, in that vein, I wanted to remind you that there are special books, book exhibits at a number of the local bookstores, and if you have time at the end of the day, uh, please go into these stores and pick up the writers perhaps you've discovered for the first time in the last few days or rediscovered. Uh, Macabre Books, our wonderful bookstore on Nassau Street, the Princeton University Bookstore, Barnes & Nobles, which is at Market Fair, and Border Books. Um, they all have special exhibitions that coincide with our conference. I also, before I move on, want to um, really on behalf of the faculty members who have planned this, thank Leonard Milberg for this, not just for the extraordinary collection that he's given us, but for allowing us to have the experience of planning this conference and this event, which has truly been an amazing experience on many levels, and it's been a labor of love for all of us. Okay, this panel is entitled American Ironies. Uh, you'll find out what that means, uh, as will I, as we, as we hear these papers. Um, we will hear first from James Atlas, uh, the founding editor of the Lipper Viking Penguin Live series and a longtime contributor to The New Yorker. We've all read his articles there. He was also an editor at the New York Times Magazine for many years. His work has appeared in numerous journals, the New York Times Book Review, the New York Review of Books, the London Review of Books, Vanity Fair. He's the author of two essential biographies, for those of us who read about and study American Jewish writing. First, uh, the really important biography of Delmore Schwartz, uh, The Life of an American Poet, which was the first such and still the, the crucial biography of Delmore Schwartz. And then most recently, the author, he's the author of Bello, a biography, which for those of you who haven't read it, includes some wonderful pages on Bellow's sojourn at Princeton, uh, along with Delmore Schwartz, actually. And it gives me great pleasure to introduce James Atlas, who's going to talk on Bellow's legacy. Thank you. 
Thank you very much. I'm sorry to appear uh, at the last moment rather sweaty-browed, but I, I just came from New York this morning, and uh, just getting out of there is uh, a complicated experience these days. Just living there is a complicated experience these days. And among my possessions here, I, I bought a map this morning of New York City in case I have to flee the five boroughs. And um, what I didn't bring, I just remembered when you mentioned it, is I wanted desperately to read uh, a passage from Humboldt's gift about um, Bellow and Delmore at Princeton, but I've read it myself so many times that at least I'll try to paraphrase when I come to that moment in the story. Uh, I'm very grateful to be uh, included in this panel even after so many years of writing and thinking and talking about Jewish American literature and biography, I'm always amazed that people will turn out to hear my story. Um, and uh, Leonard Milberg has heard this story before, actually, but I, I think it's very germane to, or at least it expresses my feelings about speaking in public. When my first book, Delmore, came out, I had just moved to New York. It was 1977. And uh, I was 28, and I was very excited about having published a book that people seemed to be reading, at least in the small, rarefied circle of people who cared about Jewish-American literature and Delmore Schwartz. And uh, I had a job at Time Magazine. That was my first job. I got on the bus one morning from the Upper West Side to go to work just the week or so after my book had come out. And... Uh, I sat down on a crowded bus, and a man next to me was, was reading my book. He had it right there in his hand. And so I, I thought for a minute about what was the protocol involved here. Do you, do you just sit quietly? Do you tap him on the shoulder? Well, being new to New York, I opted for tapping him on the shoulder. And I, he looked at me very annoyed, looked up from the book, and I said, um, that book, that book that you're reading, he said, yeah. I said, I wrote that book. He looked at me like I was nuts. He said, so what? This is New York. <laughs> and he returned to his book. So I, I do understand that the book comes first and the writer comes second. This has certainly been drummed into me over the last 20 years, uh, never more than in the last few months, I should say. Uh, I, I don't really deliver papers. I'm not um, an academic, but a, uh, a journeyman journalist, a man of letters, and feel more comfortable talking, though I, I did um, make uh, some substantive notes for an outline uh, of what I wanted to talk about, which was uh, generated since I'm used to deadlines. Sunday night, I was talking to Michael Wood, and uh, he asked me what I was going to talk about, and somehow it hadn't occurred to me. I thought I was just going to stand up here and tell jokes. But, but I, I, uh, I do have something uh, urgent, at least to me, on my mind that I've been thinking about a lot, and at his uh, suggestion uh, and with his encouragement, I decided to address the issue, which is, uh, after all, Bellow's legacy in a sense, and that is at least in part his legacy, and that is my biography and uh, its aftermath, its biographical and critical and literary aftermath. Um, I feel that with this audience, I'm in uh, relatively safe territory. I certainly 
assume I don't need to go through Bellow's books and tell you all about uh, Dangling Man and the Victim, his first two books, which he called his MA and his PhD, and his breakthrough with Augie March and uh, his subsequent triumphs and reversals, ending, not ending, that's one of the amazing parts of this story, but at least culminating at this moment in Ravelstein, uh, the work of his 85th year. And uh, instead of, uh, the, the, I assume that all these works are virtually internalized in our systems by this point. They're part of our literary unconscious. Uh, so instead, uh, I will talk about Bellow's legacy to the next generation in uh, biographical terms. Because I really, one thing that I've learned from Bellow uh, and that I probably should have known before, is that life is infinitely complicated and things don't turn out the way you think they're going to turn out. Certainly the events of the last few weeks will confirm that. Uh, and uh, writing this book has been really the most complicated experience uh, of my life, certainly the most complicated literary experience. Uh, so I wanted to work out some of the issues that are fresh in my mind because the, the, the piece I, people ask me what I'm working on now and I like to say, I like to quote uh, what, what Frank McCourt uh, said when he was asked what he'd been doing for the 30 years before he wrote Angela's Ashes. And he said, recovering. <laughs> and I kind of feel like I'm recovering a little from my 11-year labor. But I have uh, grappled uh, manfully in the privacy of my own head with... Uh, biographical and literary issues involved in writing the book, and I now work on a piece or contemplating a piece called uh, The Shadow in the Garden, variously referred to, since there are textual variants on even things Bellow just tossed off in conversation, as uh, The Shadow of the Tombstone in the Garden, which was his way of describing in his metaphorical shorthand uh, where the biographer stands in relation to the artist. Uh, but to do that in the limited time I have, I just want to take you back to um, Delmore Schwartz, my first biography, and how I came to write that book. Um, I, I have come to develop a theory of the two schools of biography, of literary biography, what I call the overt school and the covert school. The covert form of identification being that in which the themes of the biographer's own sensibility in life uh, find a place in his subject that is not biographically as visible as it is perhaps in the case of my choices. Now, uh, when I was at Oxford uh, in the early 70s, I had the good fortune to study with Richard Elman, the biographer of, I think, of, of Joyce, the author of the greatest biography of, uh, in the 20th century, to my mind. Uh, and from Elman, I think I probably was sent on my biographical path but he, his identification with Joyce wasn't uh, as readily visible in his own biography. He was uh, a Midwestern Jew like myself and had uh, ended up at Oxford feeling somewhat out of place even in his great eminence. And he had a very profound inward identification with Joyce as, uh, as a personality, as a, as a, as, uh, he, he identified and radiated, he identified with Joyce's simplicity, with Bloom's uh, essential humanity. And in that example, despite Joyce's other proclivities, Joyce once described himself as a small man prone to drunkenness. 
But uh, in, a, in every other way, Elman seemed very Joycean to me. Uh, my own way was rather different. I was trying to work out uh, the story of the Jewish immigration at the turn of the last century, the Jews who came to New York and then many of whom ended up in Chicago, uh, as did my own family. Uh, and I was haunted by this story. Uh, growing up in Chicago, I was amazed that Bellow had created literature out of this circumstance, a city, an industrial city that seemed, as he often said, so remote from Paris and London and the centers of literary power, and yet he had created this original sensibility and voice out of this environment. Uh, I first read Bellow when I was in high school. He was part of the very world that I came from. My father grew up in the neighboring, uh, in the vicinity of Humboldt Park, where Bellow grew up. My mother had gone to Northwestern uh, in Bellow's class. And so for me, he was part of this Chicago Jewish world. You know, Bellow was an anthropologist and liked to think of himself as someone not who was, he, and, and, and had studied anthropology, in fact, at Northwestern. And he liked to think of his mission, uh, his literary mission, as being akin to that of the anthropologist, going out into the field with his notebook and studying this curious tribe of Chicago Jews, the way Levy's Joseph would study the Nambiquara, uh, and, and they were estranged, believe me, as you'll know from reading his books. Uh, then when I went, uh, then when I, I had been at Harvard and studied with Robert Lowell, I became aware of Delmore Schwartz, uh, about whom Lowell wrote one of the, his significant poems in Life Studies, uh, a poem about Delmore and Lowell uh, in Cambridge in the 40s, and I was obsessed with Delmore at a time when no one knew who he was. I remember vividly, the first time I'd read about him was in uh, an essay by Alfred Kazan, a memoir that appeared in some periodical, the New York Herald Tribune Book World, I think, in the 60s, that, that no longer exists. And I was so struck by this story of Delmore Schwartz, uh, the American boy uh, who had gone to... Um, studied in, at NYU and gone to Harvard and uh, at the age of 23 been uh, identified by T.S. Eliot as the most promising poet of his generation. Um, and through a series of accidents, uh, which, I can hard, which I'll abbreviate because I can hardly understand them myself, I, I came to write Delmore's biography. Uh, I remember sitting in the Bodleian Library at Oxford being tremendously homesick and uh, through some impulse, so many things are done through impulse, you can't imagine. Uh, I, I, I wanted to read his work. I was homesick, and I wanted to reacquaint myself with that voice that I'd read in a few of Delmore's poems in Dreams Begin Responsibilities. And so I sat there and read this poem, uh, Genesis, a 200-page poem about the adventures of Hershey Green, the New York boy for whom... Delmore created an epic story about his parents' arrival in the New World. Uh, and it was my desire to unlock that voice, to learn who Delmore really was, that drew me to writing his biography. Uh, fortunately, I had uh, access to his papers through Dwight MacDonald, his literary executor, and I uh, remember going to Yale 
to find out that he had deposited Delmore's papers at Yale. I remember going there to find out if this book could be written, if there were papers. No one had ever heard of Delmore, or, or they'd heard of him, but he had been forgotten by that point. Um, and I went and looked in these boxes uh, that had never been cataloged, and right on the top of the first box, I saw a letter from T.S. Eliot to Delmore acclaiming him the great hope of his generation. And underneath that letter, I found another from W.H. Auden, a six-page handwritten letter uh, about Delmore's genesis, a critique of it. So that set me on my path for years, uh, a path that was made easier when, in the midst of my labors, uh, Bellow published Humboldt's Gift. And uh, the thing about a work of literature is that it gradually becomes, we become acclimated to it, in a sense. We become familiar with it. Uh, and so perhaps we're familiar with Humboldt's gift now. We're used to that tremendously vigorous and dynamic voice. But at the time, when I was struggling with my book in uh, obscurity, and I mean real obscurity, uh, I got a galley of, the, of Bellow's book and opened it up, and there was Humboldt right in the, there was Delmore in the opening pages, described in the language of uh, the greatest living writer. And uh, so, so that uh, gave me uh, courage to continue and finish my book. Um, Bellow was a far more complicated case in every way uh, for the biographer uh, because he was a public figure. He, at the time when I began thinking about writing my book, many years after Delmore and after I had written other books and thought about other things and wasn't really a career biographer, uh, but Bellow was always there uh, as the monument uh, waiting, waiting uh, to be unveiled. Um, and he had interviewed, uh, he had allowed me to interview him about Dalmore, and uh, he had liked that book, and uh, we had a vague acquaintanceship. Uh, but he was then in his early 70s, and as he often said, and said to me, among others, uh, he wasn't finished yet. He wasn't done. He was still writing and working, which has turned out to be true even after I finished my biography. Uh, I had at one time thought about writing Edmund Wilson's biography, but had been uh, discouraged, and I, I'd done more than thought about it. I was his official authorized biographer and had a contract to write it. But I never felt any deep affinity with Wilson, even though I admired his work and have every book of his on my shelf and have read them all some several times. I didn't feel that he really had, uh, that he spoke to me, as it were, in the way that Bellow did. Uh, but there was always the issue of how I could write this this book uh, in a way that wouldn't impose upon Bellow's privacy and that wouldn't uh, in any way deter him from his own work. Uh, that was a complicated thing to work out. Uh, and it wasn't until I began work on an essay about Bellow's close friend Isaac Rosenfeld that I began to see that this book could be written uh, Isaac, uh, as you'll know, uh, 
as you all know, I'm sure from your interest in American literature, and especially if you've read my book, was, was Bellow's closest friend at Tui High School in Chicago in the 1920s. And the two of them conceived this strange idea of becoming writers. And they had a uh, tremendously vital and intense friendship in their teens as they worked out their literary destinies. Uh, I was fascinated by Rosenfeld in some ways even more than Bellow because Bellow was a success story. Dalmore, as I'm sure you all know, was a tragedy, a poet who uh, reached his peak very early, uh, ran into immense psychological and mental and literary problems and died at the age of 52 of a heart attack in a hotel in midtown Manhattan. Bellow was more of a Horatio Alger story and uh, started out in a uh, modest neighborhood in Chicago and ended up winning the Nobel Prize. And what kind of a story is that? That, that only happens to one person. Uh, and, it, and, and Rosenfeld fascinated me because he and Bellow had both started out with this tremendous sense of literary destiny and Rosenfeld, like Dalmore, ran aground uh, for a lot of complicated personal reasons and uh, never fulfilled himself after he published his first novel, uh, Passage from Home, in 1946. Uh, and he died at the age of 38 in a boarding house in Chicago. Bellow had written a story called Zetland, which, uh, though many critics have cautioned me, some of them rather vociferously, about making comparisons between people in Bellow's work and people in his life, Zetland was Rosenfeld. And how do I know this? Because I wrote Bell a letter and said, was that Rosenfeld? And he wrote back and said, yes, that was Rosenfeld. <laughs> so that was Rosenfeld, in case James Wood or someone was in the audience. Uh, and uh, Rosenfeld, so he had written this, this short story about uh, their lives together at Tui High School in the, in the 20s, very moving story, which is in his last collection, the one before the one coming out this month. Uh, and I went out to Chicago and again had this transcendent archival experience uh, of looking through Bellow's papers and finding an entire novel, uh, or at least a good part of one, 200 pages, about Zetland, Rosenfeld. Uh, and it was this, as soon as I began reading this manuscript, I thought, well, uh, this, is, uh, this is the book for me. Uh, and uh, I wrote an essay about Rosenfeld, and then uh, I wrote to Bellow and, and, uh, and said that I was declared my intent to write this book, um, and, and I didn't want him to authorize it. I simply wanted him to uh, give me um, access to his papers and documents and letters, because that the texture of his own words obviously was more than fundamental to my project. The whole purpose of it was to bring out the character behind these words. Um, over the next decade, we had a, uh, a remarkably complicated relationship, some of which I've written about in my, uh, when I had the temerity to publish my journals about my relationship with Bell and the New Yorker. Uh, that set me back a little ways for a while. Uh, he, Bellow and I each have houses in, in Vermont, and in the summer I would go see him and go over the letters that I wanted to quote uh, from in my book, and he would read the letters, and we'd sit out under this tree, and he would initial them, and sometimes I would provide context. And in this way, 
uh, and it's a great tribute to his generosity, perhaps his foolhardiness and masochism also. But in any event, he let me uh, quote all these letters, except one or two, uh, and to write my book. Uh, but I, after I published my journals in The New Yorker, I had uh, at least momentarily pushed him a little far. Uh, and, you know, Bellow is a great one uh, for telling stories in the Jewish tradition, uh, like Leonard and like all of us uh, in this Talmudical tradition. Somebody asked you a question, you answer with a story. So after the summer, the, the summer that I published my journals, I called him up in Vermont and uh, deciding to ignore the fact that I published them and pretend that it wasn't a matter of any great import, I asked if I could just come and see him. And he paused for a minute uh, and said, I'll tell you a story. <laughs> I thought, uh-oh. And uh, he said, a wise man was once asked, what is the difference between ignorance and indifference? And I said, what's the answer? And he said, I don't know, and I don't care. <laughs> so, so I didn't see Bella that summer. But I, I, I saw him other summers after that. And I, in short, I got to write my book. And I don't want to take up all the time on this panel. So I... I uh, I am so grateful to be able to talk about these things, like being in a giant therapy session. But I do, I will, <laughs> I just want to conclude with two things that are two areas that I, I want to address uh, that uh, haunt me all the time. Uh, you know, you can't, it's insane to pay attention to your critics. My book was read with, with great, uh, at least it was given a close reading and an enthusiastic reading by many and hell with it. But, I, but there are two issues uh, that, that haunt me, and that is one of the things, uh, the Bellows' legacy for me, is grappling with these issues that really do haunt me. Uh, one is that I concentrate too much on the life and not on, enough on the work. Uh, what does this tell us about the work, a reviewer for the Times uh, asked. And the answer, the simple and glib answer is, well, it tells you about the background and it informs and illuminates our reading of the work and provides a basis for it and sends us back to the work, all of which I firmly and uh, devoutly believe is true. But I think the other element that, that really needs to be remembered is that the biographer is also telling a story, is writing a book. It's not a supplement to the other books. And, uh, you know, there are elements of contention here. There is an inevitable competitiveness that's in tr tremendously complicated and volatile emotional battleground one has to tiptoe over there were aspects of my relationship with Bello that were personally complicated that I want to grapple with in the future and not in that book, which was, after all, very much a book about him. And um, you can't always get it right. Uh, so uh, as one of our presidents said, mistakes were made, not very many to my mind, <laughs> in two or three places. Maybe I was too tough on him, too impatient, too harsh. But the important point that I'm making here is that I wanted to write a social and cultural history of this era, of this period. I wanted to bring in the other characters. I wanted to bring in the background. And I haven't talked to you about Princeton or told you the wonderful stories about Delmore and Bell at Princeton, but I'm sure you've all read them. And, Humboldt's gift. There are moments of high comedy and uh, uh, how Delmore brought Bellow here. Uh, and they both taught in the creative writing department. But 
the other question, and then I'll stop, is, is this, uh, posed by uh, this man, the New Republic. Uh, he quotes a letter from Bellow to Dave Peltz, Bellow's Thule friend, in which Bellow dismissed Peltz's accusation that Bellow had appropriated a story from Peltz's life in Humboldt's Gift, the scene where these gangsters come and break up their card game and stalk him and, and with a baseball bat. All that happened to Dave Peltz, uh, and Bellow just appropriated this for his book, which is fine. He appropriated it and he transformed it. Uh, but Peltz had also wanted to be a writer. Peltz is an interesting and sympathetic character. He's part of the story that I wish to tell. Uh, uh, Wood, James Wood writes, does the reader care that Dave Peltz was a little wounded, or should the readers and the biographer's interest not be in the production of that distinguished novel? Perhaps Atlas truly feels that Dave Peltz's sore nerve endings are more important than Bellow's. Well, no, not more important, but important. Uh, he says... An awkward but undeniable utilitarianism must be in play. The number of people hurt by Bellow is no more than can be counted on two hands, yet he has delighted and consoled and altered the lives of thousands of readers. All that is true, of course, but in, in this critic's estimation, art trumps life. Uh, whatever has happened is worth it for the art. And to me, this goes to the heart of the matter, for life is what the biographer deals in. Uh, and art is one subject, and life is another subject. Uh, and uh, those are both the subjects that I had to contend with in my biography. Uh, and that story is, in a sense, also part of Bellow's legacy. I remember sort of when at the last time I saw Bellow, I was sitting in his kitchen in Vermont, going over the last letters that I would be quoting from in my book, and he was troubled about some of them because they were very personal and they revealed a great deal about him. And he said, uh, you can't save me. You're not the catcher in the rye. Uh, I assured him that, that I would try to do a good job and try to save him. Uh, but then I went home and I reread Catcher in the Rye. And I, and I actually wept when I came to that part where Holden talks about, you know, if you remember what the catcher in the rye is, uh, he, he stands on the cliff in the field of rye and saves kids from going over the edge. Uh, and I guess that's what I was, that was my mandate and my mission. And what I wish I'd said to him at the kitchen table was, uh, you don't need me to save you. Your books will do the job. Thank you very much. Everyone can find a seat. There's plenty of room. This, this auditorium should have been built with aisles on either side. It would have, would have made our lives easier, but it was not. Um, I was also going to bring Humboldt's gift to read to you from, and I regret that I didn't. Um, but now you, can, now, you can, now you can all go home and um, try like, to... What are we, A.B. Kabibble and company? <laughs> Mo and Joe, the Yid Vaudeville Act, right? right? Okay. Um, 
Next, we will hear from Morris Dickstein, Distinguished Professor of English at Queens College and the CUNY Graduate Center, and Senior Fellow of the Center for the Humanities, which he founded in 1993. Uh, he's written on many different kinds of, of aspects of American and English literature. His works include, for instance, Keats and his poetry, A Study in Development, Gates of Eden, American Culture in the 60s, which was nominated for the National Books, Book Critics Circle Award in Criticism, and Double Agent, The Critic and Society in 1992. He has recently edited a volume called The Revival of Pragmatism, New Essays on Social Thought, Law, and Culture. And his book forthcoming in next, next year, I think, 2002, is called Leopards in the Temple, The Transformation of American Fiction, 1945 to 1970. He's also the, art, the author of an article that appeared in Tikkun a few years ago in a sort of supplement that they produced on American Jewish writing. Uh, his essay was called Ghost Stories, The New Wave of Jewish Writing. It's already been referred to at least once in the last few days, and it has influenced many people in their understanding of a revival uh, of Jewish writing in America. It's quite a, quite a succinct um, sort of overview of American Jewish writing with a look toward, toward the future as well. Uh, his title for today has changed. It is called Jews and Power. I'd just like to add my voice to the chorus of people thanking Leonard Milberg for this wonderful collection and for inspiring this conference. It's one of the best I've ever attended, and I've attended too many conferences. Uh, the, I also want to express my pleasure at being on a panel with James Atlas, whose book on Bella does exactly what he said he was trying to do. It does, it's a very readable, accessible social history of the last 40, 50, 60 years, uh, making a great story of a career that is a very busy career, but not full of the external events that uh, you often associate with great biography. Uh, I've known James for a long time. He got in touch with me, actually, when he was working on Delmore Schwartz, because I'd published something on Delmore Schwartz. And so I knew him when. And uh, uh, it's a pleasure to share this podium with him. And Daniel Mendelssohn, whose reviews in New York Magazine, I always read with pleasure and excitement and interest. Uh, the uh, originally, I had agreed to talk about another topic, which was called Weapons of the Spirit, and was going to be about the, the spiritual trajectory of recent, especially younger Jewish writers, the religious interests. And uh, instead, I'm going to talk about something else, the, you might say the negative of what I planned to do, because the events of September 11th intervened, and uh, another subject rose up to sort of bite me on the shoulder. Uh, and luckily, some of what I intended to do was done in a fine paper yesterday by Alvin Rosenfeld and in, in, in many ways better than uh, I would have done in tracing the spiritual projects of Bellow and other American Jewish writers. Uh, so this is Jews in Power, and it begins with an epigraph from the first pages of Kafka's book, The Trial, uh, where, as you recall, Joseph Kay has been arrested or being arrested by, the, in spite of not having done anything, 
And much of the opening chapter is his musings about his situation. And he says, what sort of men were they? What were they talking about? What office did they represent? After all, K lived in a state governed by law. There was universal peace. All statutes were in force. Who dared assault him in his own lodgings? Now, we've all been told repeatedly that everything changed for Americans on September 11th. Sometimes this speaks to our loss of innocence in a world torn by violent ethnic and religious hatred. We feel we lost some naive sense of invulnerability based on many things on our unchallengeable power, the righteousness of our cause, our unrivaled prosperity, and the safe distance we thought we enjoyed from any field of combat. Since the trauma of the Civil War, we Americans have always fought reluctantly and fought our battles on other people's soil. History never ravaged our land. In pursuit of progress, we often ravaged it ourselves. Now, compounding the dreadful life loss of life on September 11th was the shock of having the world's problems break in on our own daily lives. Uh, the U.S., after all, and New York in particular, had so long offered a safe haven to the poor and the persecuted. The mayor warned from the very first that the death toll would prove almost too much to bear. But what has proved, I think, most unbearable is the succession of heartbreaking stories of ordinary lives and families ruptured forever by political or religious passions as malevolent as they are intolerant. The sense of security long felt by Americans was never, however, the birthright of Jews, who felt unwanted or barely tolerated wherever they were and were often despised to the point of being abused, expelled, even murdered. If any Americans could have understand, understood how politics might invade our lives and make a mess of our plans, it certainly should be the Jews. Yet Jews have grown comfortable in America since World War II, the fears and actual catastrophes that haunted Jewish writing in Europe bore little fruit here. And this, there is a striking paradox in this. While Jewish intellectuals, keenly attuned to ideological conflict, well-schooled in European upheavals from the Dreyfus case and the Russian Revolution to the Spanish Civil War and the death camps, have been among the most political of American intellectuals, Jewish writers have produced barely a handful of creative works probing these or any other such issues. One Jewish critic, Irving Howe, wrote perhaps the definitive book on the political novel. Yet almost no Jews were in it. To the extent that Jewish writers have focused on power at all, it is power in the family, the power of the mother or father to dominate our lives, the power politics and the gender wars fought on the sexual battlefield. It was the rare exception for books like Mailer's The Naked and the Dead or Dr. O's The Book of Daniel to show how governments, movements, and strong political commitments could alter the fate of individuals. To put it plain, plainly, most Jews have, already have always felt distant from power. Historically, religion was their refuge, their bedrock strength, the family, their haven in a heartless world. The Jewish suspicion of power may have ancient roots, Observant Jews repeat several times each day that all power flows from the Lord, a being too awesome to be named. Even when Jews had sovereignty, their prophetic tradition put severe constraints on king kingship, beginning with Samuel's harshness towards Saul and Nathan's defiance of the Jewish son king, David. With the loss of sovereignty, post-biblical Judaism 
became a text-based religion constructed out of commentary with authorities splintering into conflicting interpretations. The Talmud itself is simply a record of debates, some of which end in the word teku, or undecidable, at least by human agency. Since then, Jews in the diaspora have rarely been close to political power, except as courtiers living on the whims of their patrons. For many Jews shut out of the hierarchies of the landed gentry, the clergy, the military, the only fungible forms of power were money and language, trade and ideas. They became merchants and moneylenders, writers and scholars, theorists of realpolitik who served power, or social critics who worked to undermine it. Living by their wits, they found power in the only currencies available to them. But the horizon of most Jewish writers since World War II has been confined largely to the domestic, the intimate, and the introspective. The events of September 11th shed a peculiar light on the ubiquitous novel of personal relationships. Our lives have always been determined not simply by feelings and choices of our own, but by overwhelming forces outside ourselves. History has a way of crashing in on us. Kafka and Primo Levi understood this as few American writers could. Now, it's foolhardy for critics to think that they can tell writers what to say. Irving Howe, out of his genuine concern about race in America, once tried this on Ralph Ellison. But sometimes writers themselves, looking back, have been genuinely amazed at their own omissions and blind spots. Saul Bellow has always had keener political antennae than most of his contemporaries. Born into a Russian immigrant family in Canada, barely two years before the October Revolution, he absorbed politics, as he once described it, as a toddler becoming a Trotskyist in college during the Depression, and in fact was set to pay a call on Trotsky himself in Mexico on the very day he was assassinated in 1940. Arriving at Trotsky's villa, he is mistaken for a reporter and sent to the hospital, where amid the chaos he views the great man's corpse. He recalled the sight with precision more than 50 years later. Quote, he had just died. A cone of bloody bandages was on his head. His cheeks, his nose, his beard, his throat were streaked with blood and with dried, iridescent trickles of iodine. He is reported to have said once that Stalin could kill him whenever he liked. And now we understood what a far-reaching power could do with us. How easy it was for a despot to order a death. How little it took to kill us. How slight a hold we, with our historical philosophies, our ideas, programs, purposes, wills, had on the matter we were made of. Bellow's initial reflections about human vulnerability, about the long hand of a far-reaching power, could certainly apply as well to the slaughter and devastation in Lower Manhattan. But whatever he actually thought at the time, the older Bellow renders the moment in metaphysical, not political terms, as though it were a scene in King Lear. In Bellow's eyes, all our intellectual hubris, our political projects evaporate in the realization that man is soft and vulnerable, little more than borrowed matter easily brought low. For all his political awareness, honed by close contact with intellectuals from Philip Robb and Harold Rosenberg to Alan Bloom, Bellow has always tried 
to deflect pressure on the writer to deal with public issues, or indeed to write about anything that hasn't truly possessed his imagination. In interviews, he remarks that there's no mention of World War II in Ulysses, an odd point since it's set on the day in 1904. Uh, no mention of World War I, he says, in Ulysses. Uh, an odd point since it's set on the day in 1904. And he says in the same place, he says that Proust is unusual, the exception, in that he, quote, accepted his assignment as a historian of French life, unquote, and it invigorated him. And here's Bellow's remark. He says, he, Proust, knew how to combine the aesthetic question with the historical one. This doesn't often happen. Very few writers are able to keep the balance because they feel they have to create a special aesthetic condition for, them, for themselves, which allows them only as much present actuality as they can reconcile with their art. You'll notice the connection of this to the remarks by E.L. Doctorow yesterday on literature as assimilation and literature's ability to assimilate large parts of the world, except, of course, that Doctorow emphasized how much of the world the writer could take in, and Bellow, how little. Yet Bellow has consistently lamented his own failure to grasp the Holocaust and capture it for his work. In the same interview, he says, somehow I managed to, to miss the significance of some very great things. I didn't take hold of them as I now see I might have done. In an excruciatingly pained letter to Cynthia Ozick in the late 1980s, which is one of the letters that Bellow allowed Jim Atlas to reprint, he was even more apologetic. Quote, growing slowly aware of this unspeakable evasion, his own evasion of the Holocaust, I didn't even know how to begin to admit it into my inner life. Now, if Bellow somehow missed what was happening to the Jews of Europe in the 30s and 40s, he was hardly alone, and he would expend a great deal of effort to make up for it. In 1967, he covered the Six-Day War for Newsday. A few years later, he placed his elderly sage, the polemical Mr. Zomler, both among the survivors and partisans in the Polish forests in 1940 and with the war correspondents in Israel in 1967. In the Dean's December, he uses pieces of an uncompleted book of his own on Chicago and compares it to the world of Bucharest that he visited with his wife. Bellow's one extended work of nonfiction to Jerusalem and back was an impressionist re impressionistic report on Israel as a beleaguered society, a place on perpetual alert. For Bellow, Israel in 1976 was a vortex of intense conversation, an inescapable world with everyone glued to the radio and the newspapers, completely immersed in politics, a fate Americans were privileged to avoid. Only among literary people he feels reprieved. Quote, I'm on holiday, briefly relieved of the weight of politics. As a VIP, he meets many politicians, but unlike, say, Norman Mailer, he is oppressed, not thrilled, oppressed by their aura of importance, their kinetic vitality. Quote, Mr. Paris carries an aura, he says. The shine of power is about him. I have observed it before. It was visible in the late Kennedys, Jack and Bobby. They were like creatures on a diet of organ meats, of liver, kidneys, and potent glands. Their hair shone, their coloring was rich, their teeth were strong. The ubiquitous mayor of Jerusalem, Teddy Kolick, he describes as, he says, quote, is ponderous, but moves quickly a furiously active man. He is a hurtling, not a philosophical soul. 
Bellow adds that, quote, Balzac would have, would have taken to the mayor, perhaps because Balzac was another exceptional writer like Proust, his imagination was actually fired by social reality. For Bellow, the role of writers is, quote, not to submit to what societies and governments consider to be important. Thus, the Jerusalem book at once confronts the actuality of the Jewish condition and defends the writer's need to pitch his tent elsewhere. Literature demands reflective distance. It's an anti-politics that, that feeds the powers of the soul. The dissident and persecuted writers of the Soviet Union understood this. Quote, before he died of cold, hunger, and exhaustion in Siberia, Osip Mandelstam recited his poems to other convicts at their request. Andrei Sinyavsky, in his prison journal, concentrates on art. Perhaps to remain a poet in such circumstances is also to reach to the heart of politics. Then human feelings, human experience, the human form and face recover their proper place, the foreground. Now this is very eloquently said, but not fully convincing. The fortitude of Soviet poets was admirable and heroic. Their art was a form of resistance. And Sukhor, a way of remaining true to themselves in horrendous conditions. But can we truly compare this to the privatized world of the American writer whose autonomy can be grounded in self-absorption or complacency as well as fidelity to art? On the other hand, can writers be blamed for not dealing with something they haven't experienced? American Jews, by and large, have been shielded from the arbitrary exercise of power, shielded even from contact with troublesome intellectuals engrossed by power. In Europe, where the literary and intellectual traditions were much closer, history invaded the writer's daily life. In Paris from 1948 to 1950, Bellow discovered, quote, writers accepted politics as their absolute, as he himself by temperament couldn't do. Politics is a vocation I take seriously, he wrote in 1993, but it's not my vocation. And on the whole, writers are not much good at it. The positions they take are generally set for them by intellectuals. Bellow wants to protect writers from programs set for them by bien-pensant intellectuals, but in Europe, the leading writers often were the leading intellectuals. Sartre, Camus, Malraux, de Beauvoir in France, for example, or Arthur Kessler and Elias Canetti, cosmopolitans who emerged from the cauldron of Central Europe and came to rest eventually in England. As it happens, these last two were among the few Jewish writers of the 20th century who grappled openly with politics and power. Kessler in many novels and essays, most notably The Celebrated Darkness at Noon, Kennedy in his masterwork Crowds and Power in many related essays. Now, Kessler is virtually the only Jewish writer who makes the cut in Irving Howe's 1957 book, Politics and the Novel. It can be argued that though both published notable fiction, they dealt with power more as protean thinkers than as practitioners of the novel. Now, Howe's conception of the political novel in, in his book, Politics and the Novel, is very special. He sees the social novel, for example, as Jane Austen, a book by Jane Austen, as something portraying a stable society that can be taken for granted. A political novel, on the other hand, is more of a novel of ideas exploring the ideologies and rationalizations of a society in flux or under pressure. The forces of revolution and reaction of all the isms of the 19th and 20th century, anarchism, socialism, Bolshevism, fascism, totalitarianism, play central roles in Howe's chosen texts. Now, we might have expected Darkness at Noon, along with 1984, to fare very well in such a study of ideological fiction. Uh, it also should have been congenial to Howe's Stalinist politics. 
but he criticized it very severely. Now, just as Bellow disparages intellectuals in his defense of the imagination against politics, Howe cites darkness at noon as an example, quote, of how the modern appetite for ideology can harm a novelist when he turns to public themes. In Kessler's account, as you'll recall, the old Bolsheviks in the dock at the Moscow trials confessed to things they hadn't done, not from fear, but out of the iron logic of their revolutionary commitments, the amoral logic of historical necessity to which they had devoted their lives. Uh, uh, if the revolution, however, brutally demanded their heads, they had no alternative to sub- but to submit. The recent opening of the Soviet archives reveals much more mundane imperatives. They were tortured, broken, exhausted. Their families were threatened, hounded. The Stalinist logic was no logic at all, but the, the naked, demented exercise of force. And I'm going to skip over some of the things that Howe says about them. He basically says about the, the problem with darkness at noon is that no real living creatures would actually make decisions on, the, on a basis described what he thinks of as in journalistic t- terms by Kessler. And he, and he concludes his critique of the novel with the following uh, prescription for a political novel. He says, quote, amidst the clamor of ideology, the indispensable, inescapable clamor, listen to your nerves, a very Belovian prescription. Now, if Kessler is too conceptual, too theoretical, Kennedy is, if anything, too visceral. Born in Bulgaria the same year Kessler was born in Hungary, 1905, he studied in Vienna where he became an admirer of Kafka and a fanatical partisan of the great satirist and journalist uh, Karl Kraus. More obsessed with power than any other modern Jewish writer, Kennedy devoted his masterpiece, Crowds and Power, to the anthropological and physical basis of power, even political power, in direct human contact. His book begins memorably with a a section called, quote, The Fear of Being Touched. He says, there is nothing that man fears more than the touch of the unknown. And And he goes on to deal with subjects such as the organic nature of the physical bodies in a crowd, the posture of the body as an index to power, how the mana or spirit of the dead adds to the power of the victorious warrior, or the despot's insatiable accumulation of corpses to ensure his survival. Uh, now, if this, in this emphasis on the root of authority in physical presence, Kennedy strangely resembles the one American writer who has been consistently drawn to the workings of power, Norman Mailer. Beginning with Croft and Cummings and the Naked and the Dead and continuing with the hipsters and the Deer Park and White Negro, political figures like Jack Kennedy, boxers such as Sonny Liston, revelation artists like Picasso and Henry Miller, and numerous autobiographical protagonists in both fiction and nonfiction, Mailer has been intrigued by men who physically impose themselves in an arena well beyond intimacy, sympathy, or moral obligation. Now, this recoil from the moral and the domestic, from family origins and accepted tribal codes, make Mailer seem like the least contemporary of all uh, the least Jewish of all contemporary Jewish writers. Uh, yet Mailer was by no means the only Jewish writer of his generation drawn to politics and power. Just as intellectuals who came of age between the war were caught up in the turbulence around them in the rise of communism and fascism, in the pervasive fear and instability of the Depression, the restless energy of radical movements, so Mailer and his generation were politicized by the war itself not simply the geopolitical conflict, which was often too remote to grasp, but by being thrust into the army itself, 
pulled suddenly from their local familiar world, thrown together with others who seemed exotically different, thrown into an institution that was hierarchical and authoritarian, and then perhaps encountering the danger of death on a daily basis, these men received lessons in history and power that no school, no family could give them. As this reshaped Mailer into an existentialist, or Carlillian admirer of the human potential for heroism, it turned his contemporary Joseph Heller into a cynic. In his first two novels, Catch-22 and Something Happened, Heller shows how top-down organizations turn men into time-serving careerists, vain hypocrites whose real goals are petty and selfish. If the army turned writers like Heller into instinctive political thinkers, it also gave them a grunt's eye view of large organizations, even of society itself, as a plot against individual happiness, inimical to survival. Now, while Catch-22 is a potent grenade lobbed at all forms of authority, its political satire is quite marginal. But Heller's third novel, Good as Gold, is one of the few outright political novels written by a Jewish writer since the war. I gave it a passionately mixed review when it first came out, feeling that it was too many novels in one. A Jewish family novel about growing up in Coney Island that Heller was not really equipped to write. A mordant and funny satire on neoconservatism that might have worked just as well as nonfiction. And quite a send-up of court Jews like Henry Kissinger and other policy intellectuals who fawn and flatter and forage for crumbs at the tables of the rich and powerful. And it's inspired best as in the zany caricature of Bruce Gold's prospective wasp father-in-law, a bibulous and colorfully demented anti-Semite. Good as Gold becomes a madcap novel that the Marx Brothers, Mel Brooks, or Woody Allen might have written. But in the light of Heller's whole career, something else comes through. A crossover between politics and personal feeling, rare in Jewish or American fiction. As he himself perhaps came to recognize, it was the last novel in which Heller was able to create a convincing fictional world. It is a novel about middle age, about failure, compromise, and disappointment amid apparent success, and about neoconservatism as the cautious politics of the middle aged, chastened by experience yet hardened by ambition. I think what happened here, and I'm going to summarize a bit because we're running late, uh, is that there are many versions of his character in the same novel. On the one hand, uh, I think that what happened was that Heller, at the pinnacle of his fame, began to see the compromises and contradictions in his own life. And so while on the one hand the book is satiric and deals with uh, someone who's... Uh, 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 tempted to write a book about the Jewish experience in America, which he has no special uh, uh, information or ability to write. He's also a lecturer. He's a political critic who's obsessed with demolishing Henry Kissinger in his own words and deeds. At the same time, he's also obsessed himself with land, uh, landing a uh, plum job in Washington with favor with, by currying favor with those in power. Now, in the latter capacity, he writes good neocon articles with titles like, quote, every change is for the worse, and, quote, nothing succeeds as planned, which give the president, quote, just the excuse he needs for not doing anything. But in his other role, as a scourge of people just like himself, once promising, now contented and mediocre, he writes articles with titles like, quote, 
invited, invited Jew to the White House and make him your slave. <laughs> a, an invidious diatribe launched, uh, dashed off in a fit of smoldering pique when his Pedoritz-like rival Maxwell Lieberman gets the call instead. Needless to say, he has second, second thoughts about publishing it since, quote, if he did, he might never be invited back to the White House. Now, between these two extremes, a serious character sometimes peeks through in Bruce Gold. The embittered, amoral Jewish son, the soured idealist who's lost his bearings. Amid the farcical rifts, the wild shtick, Gold is going through, quote, a crisis of conscience that could not much longer be concealed. All his words had a starkly humanitarian cast, yet he no longer liked people. He was losing his taste for mankind. There was much he did, there, there was much he, he, he did like. He liked goods, money, honors. He missed capital punishment, but did not feel he could say so. <laughs> Gold had a growing list in which he no longer believed, and near the top it contained, contained a swelling subdivision of freedoms that included such sacrosanct issues as academic freedom, sexual freedom, even political freedom. Now, Gold has arrived at the Saturnine wisdom that, quote, nothing proceeded according to desire. In the long run, failure was the only thing that worked predictably. All else was accidental. Heller's protagonist is at once a portrait of an individual, a set of affecting personal reflections, and a curdled cast of mind that disguises ambition and disillusionment as political maturity. Just as Dr. O in the book of Daniel had infused the Rosenberg case with his own memories of growing up in the Bronx, Heller more bitterly builds a political novel around a hard personal core of middle-aged disillusionment and stark ambition. He meets Howe's standard for political fiction by listening to his nerves. So the question remains, and this is my conclusion, if Heller could do it, however imperfectly, if Mailer and Doctorow could do it, then why have so few other Jewish writers been able to integrate public concerns into their fiction? Why have so many followed instead the well-trodden path of the family novel and the, quote, Jewish experience in America? Now, social novelists like Abraham Kahan and Meyer Levin schooled in naturalism, had once tried to convey the place of Jews in a larger world. But after the war, this became the province of topical, popular writers like Leon Uris and Hermann Wouk, while intransigent authors influenced by modernism retreated to the narrower terrain of art and moral witness. Could it be that the Holocaust, the subject they most avoided, had massively renewed the Jewish sense of powerlessness even as the war contributed to their political education. Was this why Kafka, with his epics of powerlessness laced with interminable struggle, became the ultimate Jewish writer, the representative modern writer? If this is true, there is a final paradox. If the Holocaust led writers like Bernard Malama to disengage from society, to contemplate the void and the return of the repressed in the 1970s enabled some young writers, beginning with Leslie Epstein and King of the Jews, to reconnect with history. Published in the same year as Good as Gold, uh, Epstein's novel showed that black comedy and fable could be more poignant than strict realism in recovering a subject that crouched like a rough beast in the path 
of any Jewish writer trying to engage with modern, the modern history of the Jews. A direct line runs from Epstein's book through the deeply felt yet also highly comical uh, Prince of West End Avenue by Alan Isler to Michael Shabin's hugely adventure, advent, inventive Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, which treats the creation of comic book heroes in the late 30s as a power fantasy to compensate for the unfolding tragedy of the Jews in Europe. For two decades now, younger writers have been even more obsessed by the war than the writers who actually served in it drawn not to the combat of armies, but to the machinery of the Shoah and its dark residue in the lives of survivors and their children. The war has even inspired good genre fiction, such as Alan First's first-rate espionage thrillers, in which he expertly appropriates a form cultivated almost exclusively by British writers. And Thane Rosenbaum's Secondhand Smoke, another thriller in which a young lawyer who has prosecuted war criminals grapples with the past as he tries to unlock the secrets of his own identity. Other writers like Aryeh Leif Stolman in The Far Euphrates deal with the Holocaust as a spiritual issue, a terrible rent in the fabric of our common humanity. As the Holocaust and its mysteries, instead of receding, have come ever closer to us, it has become more difficult for writers to stay within the limits of the domestic novel. It is as if the near destruction of the Jews, combined with the return to Palestine, has opened up many phases of Jewish life to the imagination of the writers. The European-style political novel remains alien to them, but like Heller, Mailer, and Doctorow, they've begun to find ways to make history live in personal terms, not as conventional historical fiction, populated by mannequins and period dress, but in fables that speak for the present and answer to Bellow's exacting demand that human feelings, human experience, the human form and face recover their proper place, the, fore the foreground. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, like many of the people uh, involved uh, with this conference and many of the people you've already heard from, Daniel Mendelssohn does a number of things uh, extremely well. He is currently a lecturer in classics at Princeton, and he is also the uh, weekly book critic for New York Magazine and has been since May of 2000. His Articles and reviews have appeared in the New York Times, The Nation, Esquire, The New Yorker, Lingua Franca, um, and some online publications as well. And he's a frequent contributor to the New York Times Book Review, The New York Observer, and The New York Review of Books. He writes about travel, um, and he writes about theater. His 1999 memoir, of sexual identity and family history, the elusive embrace, desire, and the riddle of identity, was named a New York Times Notable Book of the Year and a Los Angeles Times Best Book of the Year, adding yet another dimension to his already impressive uh, literary career. He is also the recipient of this year's National Books Critics Circle Citation for Excellence in Reviewing. Currently, Daniel Mendelssohn um, is writing a book on family history and the Holocaust, which may have some connection to what Morris Dickstein was just talking about. And he's going to give a paper right now entitled Ghetto Schmetto, Jews, Gays, and the Paradoxes of Cultural Identity.
Thanks. I don't know if you can see this, but this is printed on both sides. <laughs> and I was thinking about that because I'm going to be talking about being always reminded of who you are. I just think that's so, like in case you forget when you're about to talk, who am I? Um, Jim Atlas began by apologizing for his sweaty brow, and I am going to begin uh, by apologizing for my shiny brow. I was watching a TV program, and the person sitting across the table from me said, your head is blinding me. Um, and I didn't bring any powder. Um, I want to begin today by assuring you uh, that the title of my talk is not, or uh, at least not merely, a low and vulgar example of the trivialization of Yiddish language and culture, um, and indeed that the provenance of the title can be related to events that occurred long before I became acquainted with the phrase millennium schmillennium in Jeff Chandler's uh, slideshow yesterday morning. I'd like, in fact, to begin by explaining just where my title comes from, but in order to do so, I have to tell you a little story. In my Jewish family, you can never make a point without telling a little story. Uh, and indeed, I've organized this presentation as a series of little stories, uh, stories not unlike some of those that I included in my book, which is, in a way, about how to be two things at once. Little stories followed here by a series of observations that I hope grow out of the issues uh, dealt with in those stories, which, as you will see, are about the confusions, pleasures, and ironies of being two things at once. If what follows here today is a formally a hybrid, abyssal narrative, abyssal criticism, I'd like to think that there's only, that's only appropriate. For reasons that will become clear in a few seconds, I've always preferred to anything monolithic that which is multiplex, complicated, fragmented, and reassembled, because I believe that the more that we are these things, the better, because the richer and more human we become. This, of course, is appropriate in a larger way. For this kind of multiplicity, it's a phenomenon, I refuse to say problem, that's bound to come up in a conference dedicated to Jewish-American writers and writing, or indeed to anything, uh, any something-American writers or writing or culture, since the hyphen is, I want to suggest, the site of great irony, difficulty, and yet also of satisfaction. But the stories I'm going to tell you, which I hope will illuminate those issues, if only in a suggestive rather than conclusive way, are going to be about me and my experience. And if they are, I hope you'll indulge me. It's not my fault that I'm both gay and a parent, a Jewish father raising a friend's two Roman Catholic children, someone who writes books creative and criticizes such books critical for a living, who is a part-time academic and also a professional magazine and newspaper journalist, who lives part of the week in suburban New Jersey and part on the Upper West Side of New York, who is both single and a family man. Take my word for it, I know a thing or two, yes, two, two, about the paradoxes of identity. Story number one, the Bronx, New York, Thanksgiving, 1949. My grandfather, my mother's father, an emigrant from a shtetl near Lvov, or as he called it, Lemberg, a fastidious dresser who davened every morning and who taught me about clothes and how to make the beau geste, and who for that reason seems in my imagination to have taught me how to be gay, a man I worshipped as a child and who still haunts my imagination, is presiding over the big family Thanksgivings he is proud to host each year in his apartment on Phelan Place in the Bronx. At some point late in the dinner, his wife's eldest sister, my great-aunt Ida, a woman who has the looks and charm of a failed prize fighter, sidles up to him. The two had never gotten along. 
for the following reason. When my grandfather was newly arrived in the United States in 1922, he went to live with his uncle at 234 East 4th Street off Avenue B. Across the street at 225 East 4th Street, on the north side of the street, there lived a beautiful, plump, golden-haired girl. This girl would be my grandmother. He whistled at her from the balcony of his building on the day that he saw her, and a few days later they started walking out together. The thing you need to know about this girl, for the purposes of this story, is that she was the last of seven children born to a couple, my great-grandparents, who had started the road to marital bliss as a 16-year-old girl married to a 45-year-old crippled ragman. But while my grandmother may have been the last of these seven, she was the only one to be born in the States and hence was a rarity, a princess, a real American girl. And it was for this reason that her eldest sister, Ida, broke the engagement between my grandfather and the golden-haired girl, whose name, as it happens, was Goldie, not once but three times before the couple were finally able to wed. Why should a real American girl marry an immigrant? The immigrant Ida, formerly of Odessa, would angrily wonder. But that was 20 years before, and now my grandfather had done, one, had done well, prospered a bit, much more, it must be said, than Ida's husband had. <laughs> it is Thanksgiving in the Bronx, and Ida, in an expansive mood, sidles up to A.B., my grandfather, at the inevitable postprandial moment at such events when the men are leaning away from the tables and opening their belts. She looks around the beautifully appointed apartment and nods approvingly. You know, Abe, she says, you've always been my favorite brother-in-law. <laughs> Abe looks around at the handsome room, too, and then looks back at Ida, who perhaps at that moment is looking a bit sheepish. He is not a cruel man, but he has his pride and a sense of humor. Aye, Ida, he says, enjoying himself. So now I'm a Yankee doodle dandy. <laughs> Story number two. September 1975, Princeton, New Jersey. The grandson of that man, who himself never finished high school, is going away to college for the first time, going to what my grandpa likes to call, even as he secretly quells, a fancy schmancy Ivy League school. The college boy is not me, but my older brother, Andrew, and my mother and father and I have come from Long Island to see him off to college. Somewhat awestruck, I admit, we pull up in front of the ivy-covered gates, of Princeton University in our new green Chevy station wagon. There follow weary hours of moving boxes, mattresses, comforters, the new hair dryer he has insisted on, and these big fat corduroy covered cushions that are equipped with arms that are deliciously, I think to myself, called husbands into his dorm, which is called Hamilton Hall. This is an emotional moment for my parents who are first generation Jews from the Bronx, both of them the children of people who have had no education at all. We are standing around uncomfortably in the tiny little room that Andrew is going to be sharing with two other freshmen, and finally it has come the time to say goodbye. Hugs, kisses, Andrew clearly torn between wanting to say goodbye correctly and wanting us to get the hell out of there so he can begin his new Hamiltonian, Princetonian life. We move out into the hall, and just as the fat, very solid oaken door is about to close on us, my mother thrusts a hand out to keep it open and stares at Andrew. There's an odd moment of silence between them. They've never really gotten along, actually, which is one reason this trip is so strange. And then she bursts into tears and says, Princeton Schminston, be a mensch. <laughs> 
Anecdote number three, October 1999, the Jewish Community Center, Boston, Massachusetts. I have just published a book that is partly about my Jewish family, their history, their immigration, about family secrets and family lies, my Orthodox grandfather and his strange and deceitful tales about who he was and where he came from, the brother he left behind who died in the Holocaust. The climax of this book has to do with the unraveling of a family secret that is encoded in a Hebrew inscription on the grave of my grandfather's sister. It is for these reasons, I must believe, that the Jewish Community Center of Greater Boston is on the list of places I'm going to be doing readings and signings on my book tour. But my book is also about my life as a gay man in Manhattan, in the gay ghetto of Chelsea, and to some extent it is also about how the classical text that I teach and write about here at Princeton Schminston informs the way I think about being a member of my family and also about being gay. And in my book, all the three things, Jewishness, gayness, Greekness, are intertwined as they are in my life. But clearly, they are not so inextricably intertwined in the imagination of all the readers here tonight. After I have read excerpts from my book, I sit at the table signing copies that people bring up to me. And one of these people is an elderly lady. She reminds me a little bit of Goldie. She places the book before me to sign and looks at me reproachfully. You have no idea what I had to do to get this book, she tells me. <laughs> I read that review in The Globe and I'm very interested in Jewish family history and the emigration and all that. So I ran out that same day. Of course, this is the kind of thing that writers live to hear. <clears throat> and writer publishers, I should say, live to hear. She stared at me hard. I could not find it in Barnes & Noble. I had to ask at the desk. <laughs> and do you know where it was? This is a long pause. She leans down so that her eyes, she's standing, I'm sitting, are at my level. She says, in the gay section. It's not a gay book. She walks away. <laughs> Anecdote number four. <laughs> Chelsea, New York, two days ago. I'm having coffee with an old, old friend of mine who has just moved to New York. Someone I met in 1980 when he was a Harvard French major and I a classics major at UVA. I think Harvard Glee Club had come to UVA. That's how I met him. Someone who has recently chucked his high-paying marketing executive job at Levi Strauss in San Francisco to bring his all-drag barbershop quartet, which is called the Kinsey Six, for a Broadway run. It actually starts tomorrow night, and it's actually very funny. They have a song called Ikea set to the music of Maria from West Side Story. <laughs> I am happy that he has moved to New York and we are catching up, and he asks me why I look so frazzled with dark circles under my eyes, blah, blah. I tell him I'm catching the train down to Princeton because there's a big conference on Jewish-American writers going on, and I'm in it. Maurice leans back in the banquette and blinks. Jewish-American writers, he says. Jewish-American writers? But you're not a Jewish-American writer. I, at first, am taken aback, and I instinctively want to tell him about my bar mitzvah. It's a sort of demented <laughs> proof. Uh, and, but he is, I see instantly what he means. He, like Barnes & Noble, thinks that I am a gay writer. I can't think of anything to say, and so I mutter feebly, but my book has lots of Jews in it. <laughs> then he gets up saying that he has to run off to have a dress fitted, <laughs> which I can't help feeling somehow trumps my lots of Jews. Anecdote number five. 
June 2000. I'm an event organized at the Westside JCC, but this time it's not just a Jewish event, but an event featuring gay Jewish writers, and I'm very hopeful. Finally, I will be allowed to be both my things at once, gay Jewish without the weird tendency to mutual exclusivity that my readers, if not my life, insist on. No such luck. After I read from my book a little bit, a bit that weaves together stuff about my grandpa and stuff about my two kids and stuff about living in Chelsea in a culture in which the right clothes and the beau geste count for something, a woman in her late 50s or early 60s angrily rises to her feet and points a finger at me and my co-panelist, a gay journalist whose book about his experiences becoming a father have come out the same month that mine did. I think you are a disgrace, she says, a disgrace. You have betrayed everything the movement stands for. Which movement, I asked disingenuously. <laughs> the gay movement. Is this what we fought for at Stonewall so that gay people could have children and live in the suburbs? <laughs> this, as my grandfather would say, is a true story. <laughs> I think you are appalling. You are not really gay at all. These are not gay books. Anecdote number six. This is the last one. It is March of 1995, and I have finished my PhD in classics at Princeton Schminston with Froma Zeitlin and moved to New York, where I am beginning my life as a freelance writer, <clears throat> one that I do not highly recommend. It is a point at which I'm doing a lot of little book reviews and low-paying book reviews for a gay magazine called Out. And one day, my editor sends me a gigantically fat book called The Penguin Book of International Gay Writing, which has been edited by the novelist David Levitt, a novelist I cannot help thinking with a wince, whom I had once reviewed in the pages of our very own Princeton Schminston Nassau Weekly, it's actually the first book review I ever wrote, and criticized for being insufficiently gay in his writing, too assimilationist, too conventional, not edgy enough, not enough sex. I think of my subsequent career as a punishment for this review. <laughs> And as I leafed through the chunky collection, it occurred to me that Levitt had really relaxed a lot since those days. I am temperamentally suspicious, for reasons that you will be guessing, of lists in general, of anything that forces you to wear a label. But this table of contents on Levitt's book really got under my skin. I loved Love and Death, I loved Death in Venice as much as the next gay guy, but would I classify Thomas Mann as a gay writer? Wait, forget about Thomas Mann. What about Albert Camus? I had missed something in AP French. No, there it was, a long excerpt from The Plague. Ah, The Plague, I get it. Illness itself is now a gay thing. In my review, I couldn't help wondering whether the Penguin Book of African American Writing would include excerpts from Uncle Tom's Cabin. <laughs> Two weeks later, I'm sent another book by my editor, who, to her credit, has a sly sense of humor. She knows I love schlock. This one is called... The Essential Gay Mystics. <laughs> and when I, when I look in the table of contents, although of course the real question is who are the non-essential gay mystics, and see the name of the Greek comic playwright Aristophanes listed, I throw it in the trash. That is my final anecdote. By this point, I know you are thinking, story shmories. How does it all add up? Let me begin, or rather let me conclude, since you're all wanting coffee, and I do too, uh, and I prefer resistance as always to definition to tie the above together in a way that is more suggestive than anything else. 
that will raise rather than answer questions about the hyphens in our lives and cultures by grouping these stories into three pairs. The first pair of stories taken from my Jewish family's past are about the places that we come from and both in their way raise questions about place and its relation to identity. Whether the places we come from and leave, uh, whether the places, sorry, that we come from leave indelible marks, traces that mark us, whether the transformations that we seek in the places that we go to are complete. In the first story, the passage of time and not a little bit of envious, wishful thinking have erased my grandpa's origins in his sister-in-law's mind. And yet my grandpa himself, the man who lived the transformative American dream, has no such illusions. He has not forgotten who he was. No wonder that in the second story, his daughter, my mother, is so fervent about the permanence of the originary identity, believes, or at any rate hopes, that the fancy-schmancy education and friends that my brother is about to get won't eradicate his menschiness, the real him, the him built in Long Island, Jewishness, the immigrant grandparents. And indeed, her, not at all trivial or vulgar, I would say, Yiddishization of the echt Anglo name Princeton itself stands as a kind of a symbol for the way in which she wants some essential hymnness to survive his new uh, environment and indeed to overpower it. Princeton, or at least what she believes that meant, will never own her boy as long as it can always be made into Schminston. And why wouldn't she think this? I don't think that there's anyone here who would argue that for Jews, identity is very much tied up with place. I was very interested in what Jim Atlas was talking about being a Midwestern Jew and his connection to his subject in that uh, context. So much, if certainly not all, of what we think of as Jewishness as a cultural identity is tied originally to certain countries, cities, the foods and languages and dialects that went with those places, the accents, as we have heard yesterday, that stick to the body long after the body has moved from those countries and cities to new ones, and indeed the problem of identity or assimilation about which we hear so much as American Jews, and about which we have heard much uh, in the past day and a half, uh, is in a sense only a problem since we have been able to move away from the enclosures, the Jewish quarters and ghettos both in Europe and then here, the Lower East Side, enclosures which, however oppressive, enhanced our sense of who we were and gave it a place to thrive. Thinking about the connection between Jewishness and place has helped me to think about the connection between gayness and place, both literally and metaphorically. I suppose it is worth noting in this context that the urban enclaves inhabited by gays are also called ghettos. People want to go live in a gay ghetto. Neighborhoods colonized by gays and lesbians after World War II, and they are uh, as distinctively culturally gay as the Lower East Side was as distinctively culturally Jewish. In them, you can see gay stores, gay restaurants, two gay dry cleaners, gay auto shops, gay hairdressers. There is, of course, a difference between Jewish ghettos and gay ghettos, which is that Jews were put in the ghettos and gays sought them out for security and, in a way, comfort, precisely so they might have a sense of cultural cohesion when the larger culture pretended that they didn't or shouldn't exist. But either way, I think the point that needs to be made is that what created the ghetto in one way or another was the hostile mainstream outside, the outside oppression. This thought leads me to another, which has to do with the cultural analog of the geographical situation, which is that the oppression also helped create the cultural identity. The outsider, the subversive, watchful, grotesque, transgressive, ironic, detached, outre, masked, 
the Jewish persona that you have heard about since yesterday, and those are all words that were uttered in the course of this conference about Jewish identity, is, of course, eerily similar to the persona long associated for very sound reasons with the typical gay sensibility. All of these postures, I think it is fair to say, are created in reaction to the oppressive mainstream. The question, the ironic American question, possible only when assimilation is an option, is once the political advances make it possible to blend in, move around, move out of the ghetto, who are you? Can you still be you? Another way to put this, and this is where the second pair of stories comes to my mind, is can you be two things at once? Will people let you be two things at once? And I'm not just talking about being gay and Jewish. I could be hired anywhere. Uh, but, of course, about American and Jewish, the rubric under which we and I are appearing here today. The irony behind the crises of cultural identity in both Jewish and gay letters right now, and it is a crisis of cultural identity in gay letters right now, is a deeply Greek tragic, as somebody said yesterday, in that it exemplifies how two goods, the political good and the cultural good, can be mutually exclusive. I am overstating. The American cultural tragedy, the tragedy of the hyphen, as it were, is that political success will spell cultural disintegration. It is a tragedy, I would argue, because what is left after the decline, or somebody here was talking yesterday about the alloy uh, that is left, resembles none of its component ingredients. And I would argue that that is problematic because it is not a satisfying identity. We still don't know what it means to be a purely American person without any hyphens. A symptom of this, I think, is the way in which we hyphenated people keep trying to reach back and define something essential about who we are, about Jewishness, about gayness, something that is not linked to or that transcends place, the ghetto, or oppression. Here I think about my third pair of stories. For this is what the angry woman at the West Side JCC was doing, telling me essentially that being gay, really gay, meant not having children, say, or not living in a suburb. And in a different, perhaps inverse way, it makes me think of the, that anthology of gay literature in which a gay book is no longer one written by a gay person or about a specifically gay experience, say, having same-sex sex. Or rather, it attempts to redefine what a gay experience is so that, for example, because of AIDS, any plague is gay and any writing about any plague will be gay writing. And in this context, I was very interested yesterday about this idea that, say, reading is somehow fundamental to a Jewish identity. Um, I thought it was interesting that the editors of the anthology acknowledged that theirs was a, quote, radical reappropriation of gay identity. Why, I wondered, was a reappropriation necessary if not that the ghetto was no longer? There are other kinds of ghettos besides those made of bricks and stone, of course. Ghettos, for example, on the shelves of Barnes & Noble. I think of my Boston lady. This brings me to a further, and you'll be happy to know, final irony of identity raised for both Jewish Americans and gay Americans, and indeed any hyphenates. And this was, of course, a, something that uh, E.L. Doctorow talked about yesterday. I'll admit it. I was being disingenuous in my second set of stories, I'm not sure that I, what I wanted was to be identified as both a Jewish American writer and as a gay American writer. I would say rather that what I wanted to be not was neither, that my fantasy, and this is perhaps the only thing I'll ever have in common with Susan Sontag, <laughs> actually not the only, 
is that to be a real writer means to transcend the hyphen, and not only the hyphen, but what stands on either side of it, that the essence of literariness is to dissolve those particulars and to simply be. But as we have seen, or as I have suggested, simply to be is itself the problem that Americanness hasn't satisfactorily solved yet. What would it mean simply to be with no other characteristics, nothing for your mother or your sister-in-law or readers <clears throat> or the people at your signings or the drag queen friends you have or antagonists in arguments at JCCs or anthologists to hang on to? Where, I am tempted to ask in response to the question, what does it mean simply to be, would you be then? But I won't ask, because after all, what kind of person answers a question with the question? <laughs> Thank you for those three great papers. Frommel, will you let us have some question and answer? I think it would be a shame not to. I think it would be a shame not to have just a few. What do you think? Very short questions. Who has a very short question? Any hands? Yes, yes, yes. Susan. I take your point. <laughs> Do you want to say anything more? No, I, I, I completely agree. You know, I think it's, I think this, I, I think this is a very large subject, and I think every one of the names, every one of the writers that you mentioned raises very interesting questions about this whole question of the, uh, of, of the writer's relation to the private, the domestic, the. Uh, uh, larger social entities and so on. I think that uh, 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 the stereotype of, that, of women writers being even more confined to the domestic and the uh, 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 private life than men is, uh, is, has, was, was to a degree in different ways challenged by every one of those writers. Uh, uh, the, uh, I think the particular thing that inspired me to raise this question, which was the way that the world situation, as I say, crashed in upon the city of New York and the United States, was a different kind of politics, a different kind of history from what many, though not all, of those writers were interested in. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and therefore, I was inspired to look at the kinds of writers who might have, who would have, who perhaps ought to have had 
something to say about that kind of issue. And one of the, I think the Holocaust was the first thing that came to mind, partly because one of the first things that came to my mind about uh, September 11th was the question, which could be seen as a metaphysical question, could also be seen as a political question, uh, could also be seen as a personal human question, the question of, you know, how could anyone do such a thing? How could people... You know, I think that in the end we found that our only protection, our, our, our largely our only protection had been our feeling that no one would ever do this kind of thing, that no one would ever actually do it. Uh, and so I wanted to look at ways in which writers had given us material to try to conceive of this particular relation between history and our private lives. Uh, but I certainly agree that there are many others, uh, and not strictly along gender lines, many other ways of conceiving this subject and uh, that perhaps I may pursue someday. And also the genre line. Um, mm -hmm. Why is it that when people say writer, they never mean poet? Or well, well, the... Um, the, the question has to do with uh, genre. Was Morris Dickstein really talking mainly about fiction, um, and why, if so, he didn't address poetry or, or drama? Well, I, I, I'll tell you, uh, I have perhaps a prejudice, but, also, but maybe also some basis for it in thinking that uh, fiction has traditionally been the, the genre that has more readily embraced the social. In other words, the whole realist tradition in 19th century fiction, which I think is entirely devolved into a sub-branch of popular fiction in the 20th century. Uh, my, my real subject was how a particular tradition in fiction has either defaulted or failed to really thrive in contemporary America uh, uh, or uh, that 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 has taken what I described as this private and introspective turn. Uh, now, to my mind, poetry begins or is largely tends to be more introspective and and has a way of including larger issues. I think in a different configuration from fiction. I, th I think my subject really was how fiction uh, has defaulted on the social subject that had been a very important part, play, uh, that played a very important role within the history of fiction. So. so then we can recommend that everybody should read Nero Rukeyser and Allen Ginsberg and Edmund Rich. Certainly. They yes. Yes. Well, Hannah. Well, I think that Israel has been part of this, to some extent, this re-embrace of a larger world that has occurred among younger writers since the early 1980s. Uh, the, uh, there's, 
I think there's very little trace of Israel in uh, American Jewish writing uh, up in the first about the first 30 years of Israel's existence. Now, I don't know whether that's because there was much less transit between America and Israel at the time, or whether American writers belonged to a different, more assimilated tradition that wasn't particularly interested in Zionism. Uh, uh, or the classic story of the World War II writers, that they were trying very, very, very hard to be American, and therefore, as Bellow himself has said a number of times, he had no time to think about certain kinds of Jewish issues because he was trying so hard in books like Ogie Marsh to be American. Uh, I would, I would link Israel with the Holocaust and as they are linked in their inception uh, as part of this return towards, uh, towards a conception of what other kinds of Jews with, uh, who, with power and agency might write or might have done. I think that in Bellow's description of being in Israel, of course, he talks a lot about writers. Writers are among the many, uh, numerous among the people that he meets. And, and he's talking about writers like Oz and Yehoshua and other writers of an older generation who are completely caught up in Israeli politics. And it's very striking to me how on almost every page of that book, Bello is trying to fend off the immersion of literature and the political that he sees among Israeli writers. I think in a later generation, younger generations do not feel, shall I say, threatened or do not feel that kind of separation in the, in the same way. And as I think as younger American writers developed different kinds of interchanges with Israel, Israel became part of their examination, both of their own identity and also of the modern history of the Jews and also of, of where the Jews have come from over the last several centuries and have come to. And so I think this is a really dramatic and important change in American Jewish writing. Okay. I think we need to end it. I'm very sorry, um, but you can continue conversation over coffee and something to eat. And we have 15 minutes, excuse me, 15-minute break, and then return at 10 past 11. Thank you.